Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about the things we learned, founding schools, and how they just might relate to the rest of the world. My guest today is Greg Ashman. Greg is originally from England. He lives in Australia now, and he is the author of A Little Guide for Teachers to Cognitive Load Theory. It's one of the cleanest and crispest summaries of perhaps the single most important piece of cognitive science for teachers and anyone else who's interested in learning to understand. So I invited Greg on the show to ask him all sorts of questions about working memory, long-term memory, and how learning works, and he did not disappoint. So here is my interview with Greg Ashman. So, Greg Ashman, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Doug. Yeah, it's great to catch up. And uh, one thing that I uh, admire about you, Greg, is you do like an underappreciated cause. One of my favorite (laughs) books of yours is The Power of Explicit Teaching and Direct Instruction. Uh, There's an underappreciated cause. Your book, The Truth About Teaching, is kind of a myth buster. And so your most recent book, Cognitive Load Theory, is a little bit of a departure for you. I mean, Cognitive Load Theory, comparatively popular. Dylan William says Cognitive Load Theory is the single most important piece of research for teachers to know. And here you've written a great little book about it. And I don't mean little in a demeaning way. It really is a little tidy, accessible, easy to process in a sitting or two book. And so I mean that as a compliment. But can you just tell us a little bit about cognitive load theory. It's about understanding the interplay between working memory and long-term memory. Maybe you could start by just defining those two terms. Yeah, well, thank you, Doug. You're very kind about my books. It's interesting you should say that cognitive load theory is really popular. It certainly wasn't when I, well, well, when I started looking at it. So um, I got interested in it through, I read Visible Learning by John Hattie, which is now not something that I actually agree with the methodology behind. But um, I think it's a book written in good faith and it, it talks, it really introduced me to a lot of research. And I sort of found cognitive load theory through that. So there's a reference in Hattie to a paper by Kirshner Sweller Clark, well, minim, Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Doesn't Work. And that gives the case against um, inquiry learning or, or whatever we want to call that. And they refer to cognitive load theory as, as uh, the theoretical basis for that. So I was blogging and I got in contact with John Sweller and I ended up doing a PhD under Sweller and Slava Kaliuga. Um, So in terms of defining the terms, so it's George Box. I always start when I present on cognitive load theory. George Box, statistician, he says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I say that because I I get people say, yeah, but cognitive load theory doesn't talk about sensory memory. Sensory memory definitely exists. So therefore, the model of the mind used by cognitive load theory is wrong. Uh, That's a misunderstanding of science. In science, we build models that make predictions, and uh, we don't need to include sensory memory in the model to make predictions about learning in the context of the, the sorts of experiments done by cognitive load theory. So a model is as good as it is at making predictions, and that's all. We are always simplifying things when we make scientific models. Uh, It's not meant to be a full and complete accurate description of the world. The second misconception I think people have is they get the mind and the brain mixed up. Cognitive load theory says nothing about where things are happening in the brain. It says nothing about neuron. It's not a neuroscience theory. It is a model of the mind. There are these two elements that are critical in cognitive load theory, working memory and long-term memory. But I'm not saying that this one is in the cortex or this is at the front of your head. There isn't a localized place that you can point to where these things happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an abstract. It's like the London tube map or, or something. So the working memory it started off life 
in the 1960s calling it the short-term memory because what people used to do, there's a very famous paper by George Miller where uh, he, he calls it the magic number seven plus or minus two. And, and essentially, say uh, you, I asked you to re- remember and hold on to uh, a sequence of random letters, probably about the most that you could hold in your memory over time just repeating them over and over is about seven. But in the 60s, that evolved into an early 70s, that evolved into a model of a working memory. So rather than just being a short-term recall, it's the area which we process what we're thinking about now. And because we're doing a bit of processing and moving things around and manipulating things in this working memory, we started to call it a working memory, but also the limits are smaller. So Nelson Cowan, in, I think it's 2000 or 2001, says the limits of working memory are about four or five items. It's very, very limited. And a lot of people do not pay enough attention to that. Would it be safe to say that a decent synonym for working memory is conscious thinking? Yes. I'm a bit squeamish about that because people start having conversations about what is consciousness and And that's all gets very philosophical. But if you mean it in a very basic sense, the thoughts that we know we are having right now, then yes, it sort of identifies with that. Now, a very famous model, and I've just blanked on who the guys are who came up with it, Badley and Hitch. So they come up with this very famous model for working memory in the 1970s, which in a really interesting way, which we might get onto depending on the time, cognitive load theory actually rejects that model, but it's it's the popular model of working memory that most people know about. Long-term memory does exactly what it says on the tin, really. It's where we store everything over a long period of time. But it is a bit weird. We know that things are stored in terms of their relationships to other things. And there's a storage strength, like how well it's stored. And there's a, a retrieval strength, how easily we can retrieve it. And we can sort of train the mind by doing retrieval practice, that these things are important to be able to retrieve. It's not really within the scope of cognitive load theory that much, but th- this, this comes from other theories of the mind. Um, long-term memory is a superpower. It's a human superpower because when I just said about items, the limit falls away entirely when you're dealing with things in long-term memory. The example I often give is 3x equals 18. So if I say to a room full of teachers, 3x equals 18, look, we've got a 3, that's an item. We've got an x, that's an item. We've got an equals, that's an item. And we've got an 18, that's another item. But they're also in a relationship with each other. We say that they've got a high amount of element interactivity. They don't, they're not discrete. We can't manipulate one of those things without doing something to the others. So you can't just take the three away. If you divide one side of the equation by three, you have to divide the other side of the equation by three. There's a lot here. You can see that to someone who's never come across any of these concepts before, the, the principle of equivalence that the equal sign represents, there's a lot, and it's well over four or five elements to process at a given time, and so it would overwhelm the working memory of a novice. But within a few seconds of me saying 3x equals 18, most people that have done elementary algebra know that x is 6. Now, they've done that because they've triggered a schema, a connected set of concepts in long-term memory, And by triggering that schema, it's almost unconsciously they've just come up with the answer. So the extreme limits of working memory that we suffer from as novices are almost entirely overcome by having lots of stuff in long-term memory. And the effortlessness, the effortlessness with which we recall these things and trigger these schemas, I think is responsible for one of the most pernicious problems in education. Because it's so obvious to me because I've got it in my long-term memory, I struggle to empathize why it's not obvious to you. And I put you on a much steeper gradient of learning than you can cope with, because I assume the things I downrate the 
amount of stuff I have in my own long-term memory and, and the effect that that's having on what I can do. And then that makes my assumption about you as a learner flawed. The curse of knowledge, I think it's called. So to you, our proficient mathematician 3x equals 18 is one thing. It's a chunk of information you might argue, but to a novice, this is a kind of mystery of like, what could X mean? And why is the three, you know, why is the three before it? And even how do I, how do I solve it? These are all things that I would have to think consciously about. Absolutely. Like three X is quite late that we start doing that. Like uh, for, for many years, it's three times X. So you, you've got to have that bit of knowledge. There's an awful lot going on to get to the point yet someone who has not necessarily studied maths to a very high level can process all of that. Now, we could think, some people talk about, well, we just bring the, the, the stuff from long-term memory into working memory and process it. Some people say, well, we just process it directly long-term memory. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the point is that when we've got a lot of knowledge about something, we can draw on those schemas in long-term memory with virtually no effort at all. And I think that this is responsible for why, you know, you'll get a very eminent mathematician's and they will pronounce about education. And they'll say things like, oh, drill and kill in the classroom. It's terrible. What we, re what we really need to do is get them doing what real mathematicians do, coming up with hypotheses and testing them and all that, because they've completely disregarded, because it's so effortless for them to retrieve stuff from long-term memory, they've completely disregarded the value of having all that stuff in there and maybe the hours and hours and hours of practice that they've done themselves to get that stuff in the long-term memory and to be able to retrieve it so fluently. So I'm a little bit worried that we've got a curse of expertise going here on the podcast. So oh, I'm sorry. Just try and do a, no, just, I'm going to try and do a super simple summary of what I think you've said and then maybe ask you some questions about it. And I think it's interesting because you describe long-term memory as a human superpower. And often when I talk at, at, I would say, a much lower level of proficiency about cognitive flow theory, I often describe working memory as a human superpower. Oh. But I think what I hear you saying is that working memory is our conscious thinking it's, or we're aware that we're thinking about it's where we wrestle with ideas and also where we encode ideas into long-term memory. And it's powerful. Our ability to engage in higher order thinking and problem solve you, you know, using our working memory is immense, but it's also preciously small that we can really realistically, we can really think about one or two things at a time. We have to work hard to keep things in our working memory or they slip away from us. It's labor intensive and fairly slow. But if we think deeply about them and deliberately about them, we can get them into this limitless place called long-term memory. And if they're there and the encoding strength is strong and the retrieval strength is strong, we can then draw on them with no load on working memory. One, is that a fair summary? And if so, why would it be so beneficial to be able to draw on things that no load on working memory? I think that's a fair summary. I think some of that strays outside of cognitive load theory, but it's a fair summary, I think, of, of a good model of how the mind works. So the model, very simply, is this working memory and this long-term memory. And the idea is that anything you learn that's academic, like English or maths or science, has to pass through this extremely limited working memory to get into long-term memory. Interestingly, we seem to be primed to learn certain things without that restriction. So when we learn our local language as an infant um, and we learn to speak and listen, that doesn't seem to have to go through working memory in the same way. It's almost as if we've, we've got a, a module in the brain that's just ready to soak all that stuff up. It's this 
academic stuff that that's actually historically quite recent inventions like writing you might not think writing's a, a recent invention but it's only a few thousand years old which is nothing in terms of the amount of time that humans have been around so it's those things that have to go through this really limited working memory this is what you'd call biologically secondary knowledge yeah so the idea is this biologically primary knowledge and skills that we've evolved to pick up like our local language and then there are secondary things that are more recent cultural inventions like writing reading and writing maths and even if there was an advantage evolutionarily in us being able to do those things there just hasn't been enough time for us to evolve to pick those things up naturally and so the brain is isn't primed to know what's important so you could think of this the limits of this working memory as being a feature not a bug because if we just took in everything our brains would be full of all sorts of rubbish you know that we've seen on tv or or on the and it, and so it, this limited working memory acts as a sort of filter you try it, it, it sort of trains the mind as to what's important what really needs to go in there and what stuff that we can just forget that can just bounce off the side so yeah it's these two elements it's this very limited working memory we can only process a few things at a time and this effectively limitless long-term memory there must be a limit to long-term memory that no human has ever been born that's filled up their long-term memory yet. Yeah, and not if you've watched one of those guys on a YouTube video memorizing digits to pi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, even those guys haven't filled up their long-term memory. It's true. So there's like a little bit of a tragedy in this story, I think, which is part of what you're saying is we don't control our own memories, which is you can't decide to remember something as much as you want to, that you can take certain actions to increase the likelihood that you or someone will remember something but you can't decide to remember something as much as you want to. Yes, it's a bit like sport. So say you're playing soccer and you want to take a corner kick. You can know how to take a corner kick. You can decide that that's what you're going to do. But actually to be able to do it effectively, you're going to have to practice it over and over. You can't just know how, like someone explain how to do it and you just execute it. And it's a bit like that with memories. You can't just decide to remember something, that something's important, I'm going to decide to remember it. And I think this is the mistake that's, that sits behind a lot of rereading that people do. They, they try and reread notes because I'm going to decide to remember this. Now, the trick is you have to use it, you have to practice and this is the idea behind retrieval practice. So if you want to remember something time after time after time, you've got to practice remembering it. And that involves self-testing, I suppose. So retrieval practice is, a, is an interesting one. It's an area of cognitive science. It doesn't really sit in cognitive load theory, but obviously it has implications for it because if we're going to bring this stuff from long-term memory and apply it, we, we need to have trained ourselves to be able to retrieve it easily. Can I ask you about... Just to go back to this idea that you can't decide to remember. Remember, when we talk about remembering something, I actually think that we're talking about two different processes. One is encoding. You called it something else. You called it um, storage. That's what you called it. Uh, so the storage strength, and this is the new theory of disuse by Robert Bjork and someone else. And they say that memories have two properties. One is the storage strength, so how well it's stored, and one's the retrieval strength. And a good example is, I don't know, you walk down a country lane way and there's a there's some jasmine there and you smell the jasmine and, the, and all of a sudden a, a memory from your childhood appears that you associate with the smell of jasmine. The retrieval strength of that is very weak because you, you haven't retrieved it much 
Um, and it's taken a specific thing to take you back there. But the storage strength is very high because it's persisted in your long-term memory for decades. So there's a retrieval strength and a, and a storage strength. So when we fail to get transfer, which is yeah. something that I try to learn, I can then use later. We often call it the same thing. We think about it as forgetting, or fail, but really there are two potential causes. One is I didn't encode it in the first place. I didn't store it correctly or fully in the first place. Or I could have stored it as with this memory of the smell of jasmine, but I failed to retrieve it. My retrieval strength isn't strong enough. And you talked a bit about retrieval practice being the key to retrieval. Can we talk about some of the drivers of encoding, which is, you know, one of the things you write about in your book is that everything that gets encoded in long-term memory has to pass through working memory to get there. And so I just have a little list in front of me here. I've written down attention, motivation, deliberate difficulty as things that I think would be likely to cause some more likely to cause something to become encoded in long term memory. What's in your list of what causes encoding? So what you have to have, according to cognitive load theory, is you have to have enough elements to process in working memory without overwhelming working memory. Now, one misunderstanding about cognitive load theory is that you should always try and reduce cognitive load. So cognitive load means literally the number of items we're trying to process in working memory. It means that often it's hard to actually say exactly what that number is because it depends on how you try and count things, but that's what it means. And if our working memory can process four or five items and we give it six items to process, we have overloaded the working memory and no encoding will happen. No learning will happen in that situation. But one misconception is that we therefore need to reduce the cognitive load to always, always reduce the cognitive load. Now, the problem with that is if we've only got one item to process in our four item capacity working memory, that will also lead to very little encoding because we're not optimizing what we're using the working memory for. And this explains what seems like sometimes opposite issues and slightly contradictory issues. So I mentioned Robert Bjork earlier in his new theory of disuse. He's come up with a theory of desirable difficulties, which I think you were sort of getting at, which is when they do research with undergraduate students, they give them lists of words to memorize and say, if you have to generate part of the answer yourself, so you might have states and their capitals. So you'd have Texas, Austin, New York, Albany, I don't know. And then the other group, instead of having that, they'd have Texas A line, uh, New York A line, and you have to generate the response yourself rather than just read the, the lists of states and their capitals. Recognition versus recall. Well, yeah. So the group that has to generate something tend to remember them better, these lists better than the group that, that are just given them to read. And this is called a desirable difficulty. But what you've done there is you've taken something that's very low element interactivity. You've got to consider two things at a time, a state and its capital, and you've increased it a bit to optimize working memory. Now, if you're dealing with the example we had earlier, 3x equals 18, and you've got a novice, that's already beyond working memory capacity. So if it's a complete novice, so you're going to have to even build them up to that. So you're going to have to try and reduce the amount of load. You don't want to introduce desirable difficulties when you've got something that is intrinsically high in load. But when you've got something that is quite low, so learning vocabulary words, 
learning lists of names, learning symbols for the periodic table of elements. They're intrinsically low in load because you only have to worry about one thing at a time. So in those circumstances, you might want to introduce some of these desirable difficulties. But if you've got something that is intrinsically high in load, so 3x equals 18, constructing a paragraph, I mean, if you think about that, the sentences all have to relate to each other. So you've kind of got to have the whole paragraph in mind um, while you're writing other bits of it. So that's intrinsically high in load for no novices when they're first writing paragraphs. So those things, you don't want to introduce difficulties. They won't be desirable. You want to try and scaffold and reduce the number of things that people have to process at any one time. And exactly where the sweet spot is, you know, it's like Goldilocks and the porridge, exactly what's just right, you can't really predict that from the theory. That will depend on learners in your classroom. And so this is why I think formative assessment is very important because you can't, from a theoretical basis, always predict exactly what the right load will be. So you've constantly got to interact with the students in front of you to measure what you're doing is working for them. So the act of teaching something is really the act of managing working load for learners. Yeah. And I want to be in this sweet spot where, I mean, one of the things that I've read about desirable difficulty when it's appropriate, it's really interesting to hear about there are times when it's not appropriate. Sometimes when a concept is really challenging, you're saying, I want to actually simplify it for people so that they understand it, then maybe later increase desirable difficulty. But if people have a conception of the thing and I want to expand their learning, I want them to have a deep understanding of it. I would seek this idea of desirable difficulty. I think Daniel Willingham says, we remember what we think about. I want you to think hard about it. But I think implicit in desirable difficulty is also unsuccessfully, which is oftentimes, actually, I see this a lot in sports settings where people like to expose athletes to, you know, just like a crazy challenge on the idea that like the crazier the challenge, right? We're going to, it's a football match, but we're going to play it on a triangle and there are four different teams with different color bibs and I'm going to shout out a color and that color is now your teammate that that level of difficulty would not necessarily accelerate learning because it's not successful is that I'm just I'm, I guess I'm asking you to talk to riff a little bit on how do we find this sweet spot with desirable difficulty where I'm working hard at something I'm thinking hard about it so that I'm more likely to remember it but I'm I'm not overtaxing working memory yeah so the thing that we haven't talked about we've talked entirely about novices so we talked about, you know, learning list for a novice is low. So you might want to increase the load because it's low load intrinsically. And we've said that 3x equals 18 for a novice has too many elements for the working memory. So you'd want to reduce the load. But what happens is that people don't stay novices and they become more expert. Now, so as learning progresses, you've got more in long-term memory. So for the person who you say 3x equals 18 to, and they know that X is six. Well, they're not processing lots of elements in working memory. So what do you do for that person? Well, you might embed that in a worded problem instead. So they've got to construct the 3X equals 16. Willingham is absolutely right that memory is the residue of thought, but we want to optimize that. So we don't want to overload working memory so that no learning happens, but we don't want to underload it so that no working happens. We want people... According to Cowan, we want people processing about four things at a time, and then we're thinking hard. We're really exercising that working memory, we're encoding things, but it's within the limits of what we're capable of doing. So as people are getting more expert, you want to remove the scaffolds, you want to take things away. One of the things um, we do with our extension questions 
Uh, so I, I teach maths. I've actually been teaching chemistry recently, and that's been very interesting. But generally, I teach maths, and we've had a discussion with our maths teachers, what does extension work look like? And we got extension work mixed up in our heads with wording problems. And there were two fundamental issues with that. One, we weren't teaching kids worded problems unless they were uh, demonstrating that they were really advanced, yet kids, all kids need to know how to solve worded problems, so that was no good. And secondly, some worded problems are not necessarily that much of an extension. What does extension look like? It looks like intentionally raising the cognitive load. You can do that a number of ways. You can write a question that has information in that you don't need in order to solve the problem. So students then have to decide what information they need and what they don't. That's going to then occupy working memory a bit more for students who've got the, the schemas in long-term memory. The other thing that happens in maths questions, often a question will start and it'll go part A, and then part A, you do part B, you use part A to solve part B, and then you use part B to solve part C, and it sort of leads you by the nose through the question. So what you can do for an extension question is you can just go straight to asking part C. And they've got to figure out their own route to get there. And so these are strategies for intentionally raising load. But you don't do that with novices who have got nothing to draw on. This is as we're gradually moving along the path. And because you can't, like you, we can make really good guesses. Like when you've refined a curriculum, like our maths curriculums at my school have gone through about eight, nine, maybe 10 iterations. So by the time you've got there, you can make pretty good predictions about what the pathway is going to be for kids, you know, how long it's going to take to get from there to there. But still in the room with the students, you're constantly refining what you're doing because you you can't know, you, you can only sort of guess where they are on the novice to expert pathway. And so you've got to constantly test that. We do it with mini whiteboards all the time, but you're constantly sort of checking out where they are so as you can revise your next step and, and make sure that what you're trying to do in terms of scaffolding support is right. Fascinating. So let's talk about some of this because it seems like this is just one of the fundamental problems of teaching and learning in any setting that it happens as a teacher, as a sport coach, as a parent, as a, you know, anywhere is my attentiveness to, I'm basically managing the working load of my learners, assessing and managing the working load of my learners. And there's, there's quite a bit out there about what to do about this. One of the potential solutions that's commonly cited is Barack Rosenshine's you know, suggestion to offer direct instruction of content in small chunks and then either ask questions or let learners wrestle with an idea, talk about an idea, struggle with an idea to begin the encoding process. I don't know if you think that's an accurate summary of Barack Rosenschein, but where are you on Rosenschein? Does it jibe with cognitive load theory? Absolutely. So Rosenschein draws on a number of things, but probably the, the prime thing that he was most involved with himself was process product research in the 19. 60s, which actually, Doug, is a lot like what you do. So researchers would go into classrooms, uh, they'd have clipboards, they'd basically try and record the teacher's behaviours, the various things the teacher did, the different moves. And then they'd look for correlations between teachers' behaviours and uh, students' learning gains. And they came up with this model, which has many names, direct instruction, lowercase d, lowercase i, explicit instruction, Thomas Gooden, Jebro, Paul Ed, active teaching. But essentially, everything is fully explained, but there's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of momentum. Um, so when I first started teaching, I, I was taught uh, essentially an inquiry model, uh, and I was teaching science at the time. And I couldn't get it to work. So I 
had to, because it didn't work, I had to resort to a form of explicit teaching. But what made me angry actually years later was that I didn't know and no one had told me and I didn't have the resources to, to find out that there are forms of explicit teaching that are better than what I was doing, that are supported by the research. So I would talk for 10, 15 minutes, give some examples, then I would set students uh, tasks to do. Whereas we now know that the most effective form of explicit teaching is to talk for a little bit, get the students to do something. And this is the encoding process because they're then encoding what you've done and often something identical to what you've just shown them. And unburdening their working memory at the same time. Yeah, is that right? yeah. Because yeah, if, I, if I say it's maths and I model four or five different examples and then set students independent work to do, how am I going to expect them to remember what I said in the first example? Whereas if I model an example and get a student to do one like that straight away, and then maybe another one, and then maybe another one, depending on what I'm getting in terms of formative assessment evidence, they've started to encode it, then I model the next one. And so this is very much in line with Barak Rosenshine's principles of instruction, um, drawn from this sort of body of research evidence that starts in the 1960s. But Rosenshine himself says, that, yeah, that's the origin of a lot of this evidence base. It's correlational. And so some people say, well, you know, you don't know for sure what's causing what, whether the two things are just related to each other. But then later in the 70s, early 80s, they did experiments where they taught teachers these behaviours and then saw learning gains. So that kind of confirms the original findings. And then the beauty of cognitive load theory is its greatest strength is its, I suppose, its greatest weakness. It's quite artificial. So the beauty of cognitive load theory is you're doing small experiments, contain experiments. A misconception is that it's not with school students, but most of the participants in cognitive load theory experiments are school students. But you put them in a slightly artificial environment because that enables you to control all the variables and make sure you're only varying one thing at a time. So the weakness is it's slightly artificial. And people say, well, these experiments that people do in cognitive load, they're a bit artificial. Yes, but the artificiality of it means that you can really control the variables and vary one thing at a time. Now, if that's all we had, then you might say, yeah, but we don't know whether it would work in classrooms. But we've also got the process product research of what teachers are doing in classrooms. And all these things seem to agree with each other. Triangulating towards a, yeah. 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 So do you have a working, th so what you described at was teach for a little bit, explain some things, then let students wrestle with it, solve a problem, talk about it, think about some different applications. This will cause them to begin encoding. This will allow them to unburden their burdened working memories. Do you have a working theory on how long? Like, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you work with young teachers. You must get this question also. If I talk for a little while, what does that mean? How long? Okay, so I don't want to be too prescriptive because I think it depends. I reckon a uh, accomplished uh, history teacher could tell a story about something that happened in history for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, keep the student's attention, we're cognitively predisposed towards narrative. It's, it's, it's something that is possibly on this biologically primary side. So it's why we can sit down and watch a movie for two hours. So I don't want to say, you, you, you know, you must only talk for 10 minutes or you, it depends kind of what you're doing. And I also think just on that, at my school, I can stand up and talk to all our staff about cognitive load theory. It's relevant to all of them. But the real problems of practice that they have to solve are often discipline specific. So, so there are certain problems 
about teaching history that only history teachers can solve. That they can get some input from me. I can I can give them some things to think about. I can challenge their thinking. But ultimately, that they would need to solve that because they're the discipline experts. So it's going to be very different in in a history class. You know, stories are cognitively privileged. In a history class, I can interlace a lot of the information about the Civil War in a story. In a science classroom. Maybe sometimes I can tell a story, but let's say I can't. I'm really delivering you a set of principles that you need to understand to be able to invoke an experiment. In the first case, I might go for longer. In the second case, I might go for stop more frequently to allow students just to process the ideas that we're talking about. Absolutely. Anything that's a bit abstract, a bit unnatural might be a good sort of common term to use for it. Anything that's a bit unnatural you need to break up more. You need to stop and pause more. As I said, I've been teaching chemistry recently, and, and I, I realized that, you know, we were doing balancing chemical equations, but the way we'd set it up, we were, the, the kids were generating the equation. So they weren't just given the equation to balance. They had to generate the equation themselves first by knowing that when a metal reacts with an acid, you get, you know, a salt and what. And um, so they had to do that and then balance it. And you can see some of the students that it was just too much, that like there were, there were too many steps in this. And so we had to break it down a bit more. And then the other thing that I've, I've noticed is with informational and explanations and stuff like that, the power of the turn and talk where you get the students to rehearse their answers with each other. I think that that's, that's quite useful as well as a part of the encoding process. I think that only that's, I've got no research evidence on that. It's just my perception as a class teacher. But you're, you're varying those things all the time. But I also think that, so when it comes to motivation, cognitive load theory doesn't have much to say about motivation. But when it comes to motivation, we know that there's a two-way interaction between achievement and motivation. So if I'm getting better at something, I feel motivated. If I, if I want to I wanna get running my time's getting faster, I'm starting to get motivated. So we know achievement is motivating. So there's no conflict between methods of teaching that are the most effective and methods that are motivating because the ones that are the most effective are going to lead to achievement that's motivating. But there is a, a value in, in variety of technique and changing things up a little bit. Um, there is the interplay the other way as well. So motivation can have an impact on achievement. So you don't want to teach deathly boring lessons that are entirely follow the same thing over and over again, even if it's something that you thought was... But interestingly, I think even cognitive load theory, I think even applies here, I would say that, well, you're the expert on this, but the difference between extraneous cognitive load and intrinsic cognitive load, I think is something that teachers and sport coaches, interestingly, often overlook. So, and I'll just use an example of a sport coach for this one, which is... I want to mix things up in practice and make it interesting for players. So today we're going to learn a brand new game, right? There are four cones over here and four cones over here. And you guys have to be in this set of cones and you guys have to be in this set of cones. And if you complete six passes in this set, this set of cones, you can pass to this set of cones, right? And so I'm introducing this activity because it's new and interesting. And one of the things that is happening is that my learners now are thinking hard about how does this activity work? Wait, what do I do after I win? How many passes do I have to have before I can go to the next box? And they're actually not thinking about what does my first touch look like? Receive the ball with my eyes up. The things that I want them to be learning and thinking about from the activity. There's this sort of delicate high wire act of we want variability, but familiarity often also allows learners to focus on 
learning tasks as opposed to process tasks. We we talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think virtually everything we do in the name of motivation is misguided. There's the lead quote for the podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you take kids into a lecture theater, you blow some things up. It's all great fun, but all you've done is create situational interest. The kids don't identify themselves as scientists any more than they did before. They don't understand why the thing blew up. And so, you know, and you get an inspirational speaker in to speak to them inspirationally. And But I think that familiarity and variety go together. So, for instance, your strategy is in Teach Like a Champion. You train about three or four of those. The kids know them. They're, they're down pat as a routine. But then you vary between them during lessons. So then we're not doing you know, one thing all the time. It's turn and talk, stop and jot, stop and talk, turn and talk. Yeah. Familiar variation. Yeah. And a bit of, you know, you can do it with a smile and a bit of humor and you can have, you know, class jokes that, that as long as they're inclusive and you're not sort of picking on someone or isolating people. And I think some people don't always make that connection. So a lot of this variety within things that has been trained you can use and that can help with encoding as well because it, it helps people hold their attention uh, during the course of what can be quite a when we ask kids to pay attention for you know an hour that's quite a long time so we have to have strategies for keeping that going so many things i want to ask you about there are two things in particular i want to make sure that we get to so i'm just going to jump to them at the risk of not asking you the follow-up questions that I want to. But I want to talk about the transient information effect, because I think this is one of the most important corollaries of cognitive load theory. I'll try and summarize it as I understand it, and then you can punch holes in my summary, and I'll describe an example of how I talked about it with, again, I'm going to use a coach analogy, and I'll use a classroom analogy as well. So I think the idea behind the transient information effect is if I ask you to remember something and analyze it, a significant portion of your working memory is just trying to remember the thing that you want me to talk about. And so my capacity to analyze is diminished and my capacity to remember is diminished. So actually, I, I have this weird life where I work with professional sport coaches. And one of the things I always say to them is, if you show your players a video of what we look like, I actually did this with an Australia rules football team. So one of the things we often, they often like show the video, then the video goes down to a blue screen and they're like, great guys, you know, what did you think? What did you think of our defensive shape in the video? Right. And so now... I have to remember the video to be able to analyze it. And so half my working memory is just trying to remember what I saw. And if someone else saw something that I didn't see, now I can't remember it. I can't go back and re-see it. So now I'm struggling to remember whether I... So one of the things I tell the coaches is either when people are turning and talking or analyzing or stopping and jotting with the video, the key moment in the video should be playing on a loop in front of them so they can constantly be refreshing their working memory with it. Or you should pause with the video stilled with a still image of the key decision point on the screen so that people can continue to think about it. Similarly, like in the classroom, when if we're talking about student writing and I want to say, great, let's take a look at Greg's paragraph and look at the way that he described mitosis. Where is he correct? How could we improve his answer? That really I should project that paragraph to the class so that when we look at it and we talk about, oh, we should rewrite it this way, we can all be constantly looking at it, constantly refreshing our working memory and therefore using our working memory to perceive and remember. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, there is a sort of dual coding effect in cognitive load theory. I'm a little bit skeptical about some of the claims made for dual coding, and I think it has the potential to send people down rabbit holes. The fundamental principles, what you said about having a still of the video, is just very sensible, isn't it? If you want people to talk about the shape of the defense, 
then having the shape of the defense in front of them means that they don't have to try and remember what it was. And that makes a lot of sense because that's unnecessary. If you can put it in front of them, you're putting load on them, on their memory in a completely unproductive way. Uh, and people have talked about the extended mind and they, they, they come up with these very sort of extent. And really that's just about like making a note of something so you don't forget it. Um, so your extended mind is a note that you've made on a piece of paper. <laughs> right. Well, like we've made notes on pieces of paper forever. We don't necessarily need to call it an extended mind. The problem with trying to use things like dual coding. Well, it does sound a little bit more dramatic when you call it extended mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem with trying to use something like dual coding is the idea that we, we process visual information and sound in different channels in working memory so we can get through more if we use both channels at once. And you buy that premise. Yeah, I do. Yeah, but the problem is that you then deliver the commentary in an audio form and you have an image on the screen. And so you can rapidly get into a transient information effect because if you've got to remember the commentary, there's no record of it. In terms of the paragraph that you suggest in putting on a screen, Yes. What I would always say is let the students read it first before you start talking about it, because otherwise you're going to have students who then have to choose between reading the paragraph or listening to you talk about it. So you put this, the paragraph on the screen, right, everyone read it, because you, you can get around, around a lot of these issues just by separating things in time. By allowing people to focus their attention on one thing at a time. Yeah. That's very old school. Well, yeah, but people say to me, you know, we can't put images of, we like to just put little images of cartoons on the side of the screen, and we can't do that anymore because of it increases in unnecessary cognitive load. It's distracting for people. Well, that's right. That's absolutely right. But what you can do is you can put your slide up with the thing on that you want them to pay attention to, and then the next slide you can put up a cartoon if that's what you want to do. And there's no conflict now because you've separated things in time. It might not be optimal use of learning time to look at a cartoon. I don't know. But sometimes you want to make, you might want to make that trade-off. But yeah, there's no, nothing wrong with making a note of something or having something there for reference. And they, these are ways of getting around the transient information effect. So if I'm building a visual for my class, a diagram of a cell, I want a simple image without extraneous information. Maybe I want to actually people think, oh, I'll put lots of colors on it. It'll be and actually maybe I want to reduce the number of colors. And then I also want to add labels. Do I want labels over my image? I want the label separate from the image. I want the image first and then the labels pop up on it. Just talk a little bit about the combination of image and words. It depends what you want to the, are they taking notes that they're going to refer to later? What, what, what are we trying to do here? Mm -hmm. But you might want to put up the image of the cell, talk about it. And then when you've talked about it, the notes appear. Do you want them to write them down or have they already got them in a handout? It kind of depends, but you, you might want them to have those notes because they can refer to them later and they don't have to try and remember what you said. But at the time that you're talking about the diagram, you might not want the notes to be on the screen because you don't want them having to choose between whether to listen to you or to read the notes or both. So again, separating things in time can get around some of these, these issues. But having the cognitive load theory effects and the framework around those effects in front of you and, and, and knowing what they do, I think can help us make better decisions about those things. Okay, last topic, because I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. I'm actually slightly unclear, and I use these terms interchangeably, but I think they're two of the most important terms to think about based on cognitive load theory. The guidance fading effect and the expertise reversal effect. This is the idea that not all people learn, that I, wouldn't, I don't want the instructional environment to look the same for experts and for novices. 
but people often, you might say, like romanticize the learning environments that experts experience and they think, oh, I'll do that for novices. It would be great for them too. That's a mistake. Yes? Yes. So this is what we were talking about earlier in the sense that you want to gradually go from fully guided instruction through a process of taking away the scaffolds to independent problem solving. And the amount of time it takes to do that depends on exactly what it is we're trying to learn. But And really guidance fading and the expertise reversal effect are the same thing, really, because what experts need is to, to practice solving problems. And what novices need is, is a lot of explicit input on what to do. And I think sometimes people think of novices and experts as well. A novice is a six-year-old and an expert is a PhD student. You can have six-year-old experts in uh, multiplication facts. Um, so it's always relative to the thing that we're trying to learn. Um, and it's not about a, so, like a sort of state that people reach in an absolute sense. So you, you gradually reduce the scaffolds. And this is where formative assessment comes in because it will tell you whether you're doing that too rapidly or not. And so you're always checking on what the kids can do. So we've finished a unit on science fiction. We're relatively expert at science fiction and the tropes of the way it's structured. Now we're going into an entirely different genre or we're going into now we're reading Pride and Prejudice, we're going to read some, you know, we're going to read some historically challenging texts. Now I need to think about whether my students who yesterday were experts are now novice again, and I would need to shift my instructional approach. Yeah, and they might be experts in constructing paragraph responses for you, but not in knowing the tropes or the, so that the, they could have a mixture of expertise. So it might be that you don't scaffold the construction of paragraphs, but you do scaffold other aspects of what they do. Well, I suppose that, you know, they must have a, have a mix of expertise and everyone's mix of expertise must be slightly different yeah. among the group of people that you've got. Yeah. It's fascinating. But generally speaking, you know, you have a book about direct instruction and the power of direct instruction, and you've talked about your frustration with discovery learning. Your argument is not that discovery learning is well, you didn't use the term discovery learning, you used problem solving, but it's not defunct of value. It is best applied to expert learners and is often overused with learners who are not who don't benefit optimally from that setting. Yeah, and it, it depends a little on definitions. Like to me, explicit teaching is Rosenstein's principles. It's a whole system and it includes problem solving, but it includes problem solving for relative experts. Now, if to you explicit teaching just means the teacher explaining something, then it wouldn't include problem solving. But um, so it, it kind of depends on what your definition is. But the, the form of explicit teaching that has this wealth of evidence behind it is the part that starts by fully explaining everything. Concepts are fully explained. Procedures are fully demonstrated before students are asked to apply those concepts or procedures. But gradually removes the scaffolds and ends up with people solving problems. Because if kids can't solve problems independently, there's no point. Greg, my last question for you is the name is cognitive load theory. And you described it as a model, and yet you're someone who puts an immense amount of value in research. You described how, you know, initially you loved John Hattie's work and you still appreciate it, but now you have some questions about his methodology. You're a careful man when it, when it comes to what the evidence base is. How strongly do you feel about the evidence base for this model, this theory that we call cognitive load theory? Well, it's one of the few things that's been developed using properly controlled randomized control trials. So it's probably got one of the strongest evidence base in education for a lot of its effects because they replicated and by other people. But just taking into account that the experiments are slightly artificial, they, they don't look exactly what normal classroom instruction looks like. But they're pretty sound. And we don't do much of that kind of research in education. 
So a lot of the, the things that we think are solid effects are not and can't easily be replicated. So I would suggest that the evidence base for cognitive load theory is one of the best that we've got. Greg, thank you so much for your time. I've enjoyed the conversation. And uh, as always, it's great to see you. Cheers. Good to see you, Doug. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.